ho, ho, hello, and welcome to an annually exciting episode of Lost in Science across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Of course, I'm talking about the anniversary of Isaac Newton's birth. Yes. Which comes around Mary every year. Newtonmas. Yes, Isaacmas. I don't know. <laughs> Um, obviously, this time of year, everyone's talking about Christmassy things, but we've got uh, some special questions that we have to answer before the end of the year. Yeah, we've got to squeeze it in. We've got to squeeze it in really quick before they all finish and go off for their summer holidays. So the kids at Corbinia Primary School in Perth in Western Australia sent us some questions a long time ago, and we're very sorry for not answering them quicker, but we thought we'd squeeze them in before the end of the year, so we'll be... Doing that later in the show. It's like writing a letter to Santa, you know? You've you, got to... <laughs> you get their result just before... You know, at Christmas time, basically, yeah. don't you? Okay. Yeah, I mean, I've been researching mine since I got it, so... It's, it's a lot it of research. It just takes a long time. Yeah, yeah. It, just, it does take a very long time to, to research in science, so that's why you have to sometimes wait for the results. And also, Chris, you have a seasonal... In studio experiment for us, yeah, because we know how much you love your in studio experiments. And to just basically disprove you there, not all research takes a very long time. We are going to do an experiment <laughs> in the studio. We're going to find out is there a best way to crack a Christmas cracker to win a Christmas cracking? <laughs> is, is it a, is it a win lose game? Is it really? Oh, it's highly competitive. Oh, it's definitely win-lose. It's, it's like flipping a coin. If you don't get the right end, you don't get the prize. Is that how so, it works? Oh, but there's winning and then there's getting the prize and they're two different things. But we oh. can talk about this later. Okay. Yeah. yeah. All right. So stay tuned for that exciting experiment later in the show. Why does heat make popcorn pop? First of all, Matthew, thank you very much for this excellent question, which has not only stumped me for a long time, but it's actually also stumped scientists for a very long time. In fact, scientists did not come up with a really good answer to the question of why does heat make popcorn pop until a couple of years ago when two scientists, Emmanuel Vero and Alexander Ponomarenko published an article called Popcorn, Critical Temperature, Jump and Sound, um, which to me sounds a bit like a like maybe the next Wiggles big hit. <laughs> Critical Temperature, Jump and Sound. Yeah. So, so surely before that we had some idea of one that popped. Well, we had a little bit of an idea, but what we really needed, and the reason that it took so long to mm. exactly work out what was going on inside was uh, we needed technology to develop and really high 
um, a high number, like a camera that could take a lot of frames oh, okay. of the popcorn per second um, and right equipment to see exactly what was going on. So mm. when it popped, what happened to it and um, what sort of mechanisms it was. And I guess the other, the other weird thing is that there's lots of different kinds of corn, but they don't all pop. That's right. So they, why, why would some of it pop and some of it not? Mm. That's, that's a big question as well. Yeah. Um, so Emmanuel and Alexander figured out that, yeah, using these high-speed cameras that took um, around 2,900 photos of the kernel of corn every second that wow. it was popping. So got really, really into the detail um, as well as detailed sound recordings and applied a bit of physics and thermodynamics um, and they figured out what was going on and wrote a whole paper about it. Critical temperature, jump and sound. That was, yeah. I'm, gonna, that, I'm just going to turn that's it into how a they, bit of that's a... That's how they performed it yeah. and they had to present <laughs> it, to, it the, into a musical performance. to the Popcorn Academy. <laughs> yeah, backup dancers <laughs> jumping and sounding. Popping yeah. <laughs> Yep, for everyone at home, that's... Um, popcorn. Yeah, that's popcorn. Yeah. Exactly. So back to the question, why does heat make popcorn pop? Well, what we know um, is that popcorn kernels, not all corn kernels, as mm. you say, Stu, um, they contain water. Mm-hmm. Popcorn um, contains around 14% water. Now, when you popcorn, you have to add a lot of heat to it. Um, and what heat does to water, it... Boils it. Boils it, yeah. yeah. It turns it into um, water vapour. goes yep. from liquid and it goes into a gas. And um, when you turn something from a liquid into a gas, um, it takes up a lot more space. So, you know, when you put a kettle on the stove, um, you've got – you start with a liquid and then um, you start boiling it and then it takes up a lot of space when it turns into a gas and it starts coming out the top of a kettle. So, you know, you've got yeah. a lot, you need a lot more space yeah, to so house the same when amount. You, when you've got a, a, a pot, all of the steam escapes out the side or it shoots out the top of the open spout of the kettle. Exactly. it's got to fill up more space. Yeah. 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 So um, the water inside the corn kernel uh, heats up, this 14% um, of water that is inside the corn kernel. It heats up, um, and then when it gets to around 100 degrees Celsius, Celsius, it starts to vaporize. Now, yeah. 100 degrees isn't when it pops. Otherwise, you can make popcorn by boiling water, but yeah. you can't. You need you need to get your pan hotter than that. So it's going to be hotter than 100 degrees. It has to be hotter than 100 degrees Celsius. Um, so it actually takes it um, – you need to get it hotter and hotter um, until it gets to around – between 160 and 180 degrees Celsius. So by the time it gets to 180 degrees Celsius, that is like there is so much um, water vapour that's gone from that liquid water from the corn kernel and turned into water vapour that the pressure is really, really high. Um, And then you get this extreme pressure and at 180 degrees, the corn kernel itself cracks at the weakest point and all of the insides, so it's this that um, starchy, yummy white stuff, um, comes out the sides, but it expands out the sides because it's got the, the vapour yeah. um, going through it. So it gets all puffy um, and it turns into popcorn. Yeah. 
At so 180 degrees. At 180 degrees wow. Celsius. So that's what um, that's the temperature you need. But maybe you could do some experiments at home, sort of see what sort of temperatures and what sort of um, different cooking um, cooking processes and experiments produce the best popcorn. Um, maybe where the butter is better than maybe uh, cooking oil, um, or if you can actually pop popcorn in water and just um, let us know, I reckon, how you go with those experiments. That would be excellent. Because I know, you know, I mean, I need to have butter on my popcorn if I eat it, but um, is it better for also popping? I don't know. But be careful though, because I do remember cooking popcorn on the stove and forgetting about it for a second. And it is so hot that it all burnt and stuck to the bottom of the saucepan and I had to throw the saucepan away. Oh, that is a devastating story. Yeah, always do it um, with the supervision of your parents. And Matthew, of course, because it is Christmas, if you don't feel like eating it or you burn it like Stu does, um, you can always string it up and decorate your Christmas tree um, while you're telling your family why heat makes popcorn pop. William, is there any other undiscovered elements in the world? So that's uh, a very good question, William. And obviously we are in the International Year of the Periodic Table of the Chemical Elements to celebrate 150 years since Dmitry Mendeleev came up with the idea. Uh, And the Periodic Table lists all the elements in rows and columns, or periods, which groups the elements based on how they interact with other elements or atoms. So most of the interaction between elements is due to the action of electrons that are in orbit around the nucleus of the atom, and we think of them in terms of layers above the nucleus that we call shells. So there's all these electrons zipping around. Um, So the number of electrons in the outer shells is what makes most of the interaction happen between atoms, and it also corresponds to an element's position on the periodic table, more or less. Now, one of the most amazing things about Mendeleev's table is that he knew he didn't know all the atoms that existed. So that was, you know, one of the amazing things about it. Uh, only knew the ones that had been discovered. So he left spaces for the ones that should exist on his periodic table. So he had a big table and there was gaps in it. So once he did that, heaps of scientists ran around looking for the elements to fill the gaps. And they basically found when they did find these new elements, that they did fit in the gaps in the table and they did behave as predicted by his uh, periodic set out, layout of the table. Sounds like the very first Pokemon Go. (laughs) 
Got to yeah. catch them all. Got to yeah. catch all the elements. Interactive yeah. uh, science, just running around trying to find elements that no one else had found to see if they could fit into, <laughs> yes. the, right, into the right. It also sounds like a pretty good way of doing things, like you're trying to organise stuff and doesn't fit into the pattern. So you go, oh, look, th- there's just missing bits. Someone else will find them. And other people actually go looking for them. I reckon don't try this at home. You don't go, <laughs> oh, look, I was going to, you know, there's, the gaps are there because uh, something belongs in there. You just need to find what fits in there. Yeah, maybe that's how you ask for it. Oh, no. I really ask, like ask the him. idea that it was crowdsourcing the periodic table of elements. I love that. It's 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 a pretty clever way to do it. Yeah. You know? and science is Science is collaborative. You that's can't right. do it by yourself. No. Um, so what we do know is there are no spaces missing in the table up to number 118. We've found all the elements up to 118. What's that one called? Uh, organoson. <laughs> what? Organoson. What's the chemical symbol? Um, I don't know, actually, because it only got named last year. So oh. it's a very new one. I haven't learnt that one yet. Is it named a Princess Leia Organa? No, no, no. It's named after a <laughs> Swedish chemist, but oh. it's a gas. It's right. A, it's a very, very heavy gas. So uh, it's got 118 protons in its nucleus and 118 electrons orbiting it. But when you get that many subatomic particles making up an atom, it doesn't last very long. So the the heavier the elements get, the higher the number on the table, the less stable they are, so the less time before mm. they break down into smaller atoms, basically. Yeah, because um, protons have, um, one of the things, they're positively charged. Mm. And so you jam them all together in a nucleus, and the more you have, the stronger they repel each other. Yep. Yeah, it's hard to get them staying together. So organoson, the heaviest one that we've got on our periodic table that people have actually observed, only existed in a lab for 0.89 milliseconds. Oh, wow. That's That's not even one millisecond. No. That's not even one thousandth of a second. No, it's a very, very short amount of time. So it decayed after 0.89 milliseconds. So there may be undiscovered elements, but unless you are deliberately looking for them and have all the right equipment for them, you're basically not going to find them. But if there's no spaces left in the periodic table, then where would they be? You can just add them onto the end. Uh, right. So they'll just have to be bigger and bigger ones. So yeah. there's no there's no spaces left where they could squeeze in between two existing elements. So they'd only be yeah. bigger and bigger and bigger ones. So they could keep getting bigger, but they'll probably just act weirder and weirder as they go. I believe there's some speculation about an island of stability that if you get heavy enough, there could be like a new periodic table of heavy elements that are stable. But it's Ooh. just a it's just a it's just a concept, a hypothesis. No one's actually managed to prove that would work theoretically. I don't think that's true. And also, in you know, William did say in the world. And this is right. Let's assume that's he's true. talking Earth. That's so true. It's a good point. Not likely to exist on Earth. I'm theoretical physicist Sean Carroll, and you're listening to Lost in Science, which is spreading scientific knowledge across multiple branches of the wave function of the universe. So this is Xanthi McGregor, and Xanthi has a question for us. Where does gravity come from? That's a good question. I think we'll have to ask Chris. Excellent question. We, the short answer is we don't know for sure where gravity comes from. Apples. Oh. Well. That was a really um, short answer. Yeah, but we don't know for sure. But the best idea we have, <laughs> we do have some ideas. The best idea we have comes from no one else than Albert Einstein, 
Who Love that guy. Came old up with elbow. His general theory of relativity in 1915. So that's like 104 years ago. Something like that. Anyway, he came up with the idea. The brilliant revelation he had was that gravity, which is kind of this force that acts between you know, kind of all matter in the universe, he came up with the idea that it's not actually a force. Gravity is not, not a force. It's not a force, and this is a, this is the key thing. Um, it's something, it has it's basically it's something to do with space itself. Now, supposedly he came up with this idea because the story he told, as far as I remember it, is that um, he saw someone fall off a ladder. Uh, saw this guy fall off a ladder, and he went up to him, and of course, offering assistance, he said, "What did it feel like? Did you feel gravity pulling you down?" And the guy said, "No. While I was falling, I didn't feel anything." By the way, can you get me some medical assistance? Um, <laughs> Not so much help from Albert there. But this is the idea, is that when you're falling, when you're in what they call free fall, you don't feel any force. It's only when you hit something that you realise you're falling, essentially. Like at the moment, you're sitting down. You don't feel the force of gravity. What you feel is the chair pushing up against your behind. <laughs> yes. Or you're beneath, as the case may be, depending how you're sitting. Uh, anyway, so this is the idea that it isn't really a force. So so one way to think of it, if you were, say, far out in space, away from any planets and things, and you threw a ball, it would just go in a straight line forever, right? Yeah. Even you... if I can't throw them in a straight line? <laughs> <laughs> It won't there's, go the direction you want to go, but no, it'll go in a straight line. There's, yeah. no, there's yeah. no bias in space. You, yeah. can't, you can't throw a googly from yeah. <laughs> outer space. But on Earth, you throw a ball, it moves in a curved path, right? And so what's ha- actually happening there, and this is Einstein's great revelation, is that the ball is still trying to go in a straight line, but space itself is curved. And that's where the curved line comes from. So, it, look, it's, it is a hard thing to get your head around. Um, you might have seen pictures they, of how gravity works. They have, like, say, a rubber sheet, like a big flat rubber sheet, and you put a weight on that, mm. say, representing the Earth. And then, you know, things rolling around on the sheet will then move in a curved path. You know, everything has to because the sheet is bent. Yeah. That's essentially how it works. Um, and it's a good way of thinking of it if you have access to rubber sheet. Not all of us do, so you kind of have to imagine a rubber sheet anyway. But it's a really good analogy because it lets you about, think about things like gravitational waves as well, which are just like ripples in the in the sheet. In the surface yeah. of the sheet, yeah. yeah. The important thing to remember is um, the there's a saying that describes it. Um, space tells matter how to move. Matter tells space how to curve. Right. Except it's not just space. Um, time is bent as well. That's a whole other thing to get to get into. Um, gravity slows down time. Uh, yeah, time runs slower on Earth and does up in space. It's a real problem if you've got a satellite. Um, but you don't really notice that so much. Um, but, so this is the best idea we have about gravity so far. There's probably going to be something better idea come along eventually because we know there are some problems with it when we try to mix it up with other theories like quantum theory, which describes very small things. But at the moment... Um, Einstein's theory of gravity works very well. We've detected things like those gravitational waves, and it's passed every test so far. So, yeah, I reckon we'll believe um, Albert Einstein for the time being, and gravity comes from the bending of space around heavy objects. Science, the final frontier. These are the voyages of Lost in Science our ongoing mission to explain strange new words, to seek out new science and new explanations, to boldly go where no radio has gone before.
All right, in honour of the most festive of all the seasons, I thought we would look at, we'd do a bit of an studio experiment on the science of Christmas crackers. What science is there in Christmas crackers, Chris? Yeah. Well, I looked this up because I thought there's got to be some science there, obviously. Why, why doesn't the crown fit on Chris's head. <laughs> I think we established that. It's uh, there is a problem with the crowns. Um, I actually found someone claiming to have science of the jokes in Christmas crackers. I don't think there is any science behind the jokes. The science is Christmas how bad crackers. can you write a joke before exactly. it's not a joke? Exactly. Now, I want to look at that actually about the, the cracking component of it. In particular, how, how can you make sure that you win, air quotes, Christmas cracking. Like, if you're going to tug on the cracker, how do you make sure you get the winning piece? You get the prize. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, as you may know, those who are not familiar with the Christmas cracker, they are a... um, Cylinder. A cylinder with two pinched bits. Yeah. And inside, there there is a crown. There is a bad joke. Paper crown. Paper crown. Yeah. A bad joke and some sort of plastic toy. Yes. And there are also two strips of cardboard and they are the the cracking component. Um, What you have is you have basically two overlapping strips. One of them has an explosive substance on it. Apparently it's usually something called silver fulminate, which was discovered in, I think, in 1800. Like it's discovered a long time ago. And it's a highly, highly explosive. If you get more than a few milligrams together, it will just explode spontaneously. So it's not very useful as an explosive because <laughs> it's just too dangerous. But you can put a small amount of it on a bit of cardboard and make how, it crack easily. How much of it is in each cracker? Um, very little, very little. Um, so it's probably in a carrier substance yeah, as well, right? Yeah, the other yeah. bit scrapes against it and it explodes. So you don't need very much to explode, which is why it's it's used. So is it just um, the friction of the other part moving against yeah, it that basically, makes it explode? I want to wow. know, I wanna know if... Um, if you could actually like scrape off the silver fulminate and make an explosive. <laughs> Apparently there was a Breaking Bad episode where they did something similar with a different related chemical. And if you're but, listening um, at home, kids, don't, don't oh, yeah, steal yes, all the Christmas say. crackers and yeah. scrape off yeah. the silver fulminate, yeah. please. Yeah, the, I found a reference saying that they um, considered military applications in the 1970s, but they decided that it was too sensitive to be... Used. Also like very too, hard to get the too other. Too sensitive it's for too the military. military. <laughs> so let's put it in the Christmas But the, the hardest thing about it for the military was getting the enemy to hold the other end. <laughs> yeah, that's right. While they pull. <laughs> that's right. Okay, so let's look instead at the science of how you, quote, win, unquote, a Christmas cracking. Now, I did look this up. I don't know if you guys have had a look, any of a look at this. There have been numerous attempts over the years, uh, mostly from department stores or from military contractors, or trying to work out equations and theories for how you could win. And most of these are pretty dumb. They involve factors like um, the quality of the crack, which actually makes sense. But there's one that I found that was from like 2005. Um, the university guy from the University of Surrey worked with Tesco department store in the UK, and he has a big equation that involves things like. Um, you know, how hard you're staring at your opponent, how much you've each had to drink, <laughs> um, what's your win-win rate, win-loss ratio, this kind of stuff. I don't know how you quantify these kind of things. So um, what I did find, though, that there was a, um, a study done in 2014 in Australia by some CSIRO scientists, mostly informaticians, which is like, um, you know, mathematics of biology and stuff like that. So they got bored at their Christmas party and... They published this in the Medical Journal of Australia. <laughs> wow. wow. They tested different strategies. So um, anyway, uh, 
I'll hand I'll hand out some crackers. I seem to have right. accidentally purchased the um, the fancy kind. This so. is quite fancy. The um, uh, the cardboard is quite shiny. It's yeah. red and glittery. And it's got real ribbons. Actual yeah. ribbons. I don't know why it had these ribbons. ribbons. So I might get you guys to okay. to to attend this first. We'll just do a complete control Should experiment. I, I'll just, I'll okay. just um, turn that mic on. Oh yeah. Hang on, hang on. Already, Stu's so gone what's for your the tactics, Stu? What's your okay. tactics? Stu? So I've I've uh, put my thumb inside the tube at the end, and I'm holding on to the uh, the little cardboard strip. What's your technique, Claire? Um, my technique is the crush and grip. Okay. Which is like crushing the entire side of it and gripping it as hard as I can. Okay. Yeah. Ready? You ready, set? Go. Oh, I did not win. I think Stu won. He got the, I did. the toy. I got a, um, a bookmark. Oh, very good. A, a red bookmark with a hand on the end. Yes. Okay. So, look, that was an interesting technique. Now, we'll get you to try another one. Um, and, Claire, you kind of did what one of the um, one of the um, suggestions was. Didn't seem to work. So, I might get you to try it again. Okay. And so, this was a theory. This was actually um, come up with by... Uh, Sorry, that, um, that sound in the background? That's me putting on my crown. Yeah. Well, attempting. It's yeah. actually too small for my head. <laughs> You're wearing another hat already, Stu. <laughs> That's true. So this was a formula that came up with by either Debenhams Department Store or Kinetic Defence Technology, where <laughs> I'll get you to try it again. And what they claimed was that if you angle downwards at, um, so hold your end lower than the other person so the crack tilts downwards towards you. So to prevent the cracker tearing, use a firm two-handed grip and apply a slow, steady pull rather than swift tug. Now, the angle has to be between 20 and 55 degrees, but that'll do. I think we've got... Stu got it again. And okay. Cla and Claire had the low ground, which should have given her the advantage. Ugh. All right. So Worst. what we might do, we'll try try another one. And this time I'm going to try because this is the, the technique trying the technique that um, got the best score. And I don't want to give it away okay. in, in, the, in the CSRO test. So I'm going to use Stu as the, the monkey. Yeah, well, he's the winner. So far. All right. So you ready? Yep. Go. You won. Okay, so from what I saw there, Chris, you didn't pull at all. All you did was just hold on with two hands. And this apparently is the counterintuitive most successful technique. The CSIRO experiment, when they did this, they found they had like a 92% um, success <gasps> rate of wow. this technique where you basically, you just, you just basically hold it and let the other person do all the work. So I want you to try it now, Claire, because you okay, had a poor great. success with Stu. <laughs> oh, okay. It didn't work that time. I lost again. Claire, okay, okay. Claire, how about you and I try it? You and I try it. Here we go. And Do you want me to pull this time and you hang on again? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I lost. Okay, that okay, is there was four a second. times I yeah. have lost. Twice using your 92% uh, method. Do you, want, do you want to have one more go? Okay, we're, one we're more going go, the one more set. go. Uh, okay, right. okay. So you just hold, hold on, steady. You don't move, okay? You make sure it's straight, okay? <laughs> there we go. Hooray! Right, Claire wins. Now, Hooray, Claire wins. There is this a, time lucky, There is everyone. a significant smell of gunpowder in this studio right now. Um, Smoke alarm's about to go off. But um, yeah, look, this is the idea. Now... If you're going to be doing this, is that 10 minutes? Eight. Eight. If you're going to be doing this at home, um, 
make sure you keep this technique secret because if both people are just sitting there and not pulling, <laughs> you will it's never have a winner. Take a very long time. Um, so yeah, that is that is the best thing to try at Christmas is just let the other person do all the work. Particularly if they pull really hard, then it will yeah you're more likely to win. I think Claire, would you like to take us out with a, a joke that you got from your from my winning cracker? Yeah. Um, everyone, what do reindeers hang on their Christmas trees? Hornaments. Oh, God. Why even bother? Sorry, everyone. That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook uh, and if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost, lost in science. listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.